0: Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Samuel Scheffler. His new book is titled Death and the Afterlife. It is published with Oxford University Press as part of their series of Berkeley Tanner Lectures. Scheffler is University Professor of Philosophy at New York University. Our moral lives are crafted out of projects, goals, aims, and relationships of various kinds. The pursuit of these goals and the nurturing of certain kinds of relationships play a central role in giving our lives their meaning and their value. This much is commonplace. What is not frequently noticed is that our practices of valuing and making meaning in our lives draw upon the presumption that others will outlive us, that there will be generations of human beings continuing into the future. One way to grasp the significance of this presumption is to imagine a scenario in which we now know that humanity has no future. How would this knowledge affect our lives in the present? Would the pursuit of our own goals matter? What do our likely reactions to the imagined scenario tell us about value? And what does the envisioned scenario tell us about how we should regard our own death? In Death and the Afterlife, Samuel Scheffler carefully explores these questions. His surprising suggestion is that Much of the value that we find in our own lives depends upon the inevitability of our own death and the existence of others who will survive us. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Samuel Scheffler. Hi, Bob. Thank you so much for joining us today on New Books and Philosophy.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to talk to you.
0: Well, that's wonderful. Uh, And thank you, listener, for joining us today. My guest is Samuel Scheffler, and we're going to be talking about his fascinating new book, Death and the Afterlife. It should begin, I think, uh, by pointing out that this book is not about the immortality of the soul. Uh, It rather is an investigation of the moral significance of the common assumption, an assumption we all seem to accept that others will outlive us. In fact, others who are strangers will outlive us, that there will be future generations of people. Um, uh, Sam argues that uh, a lot of the meaning of our own current lives depends upon there being a future for humanity. Um, This is an intriguing thought, and it's spelled out uh, in the book in in an intriguing way by means of uh, a couple of thought experiments that are, are, I think, uh, uh, really insightful. Um, But before exploring further and talking further about the book, uh, Sam, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Uh, Sure, happy to. Um, I was um, raised in the greater Boston area, and... um, I uh, was an undergraduate at Harvard and a graduate student at Princeton back in the uh, in the mid-70s. And uh, my first job was at the University of California, Berkeley. I began teaching there in 1977 and was there for 30-odd years before moving here to NYU in, uh, in 2008. And uh, that's the simple academic autobiography.
0: <laughs> well, that's wonderful. Um, now, b- before we d- get into talking about um, the details of death and the afterlife, um, I wanted to uh, sort of ask a broader sort of background question because it, it strikes me, I hope I'm correcting this, to think that um, – uh, the arguments that you deploy in uh, in Death and the Afterlife sort of nicely complement some of uh, the moral philosophy that you've done previously. And these are views that you're well known for the, about the importance of loyalty and allegiance in tradition, uh, associative duties, and these sorts of things. Can you give, uh, can you give us a little background into the, the overall moral project that you've been pursuing? Um, I can certainly try, but one feature
1: of the work uh, the work you've mentioned and the different um, the different interests that you've um, rightly said I've been developing in the last several years is that they didn't begin with an overall project. I didn't start out with a theory or a, even a clear sense of where I was going. Um, to some extent, it's only after I've written various things that I see that it was connected that, to something that came before. Um, so in this case, um, I have been interested for a long time now, as you say, in issues about um, uh, associative duties, so-called, or special responsibilities, and special um, reasons that people have by virtue of their participation in valuable personal relationships or their membership in significant groups and associations. Um, And that interest is longstanding. It led me into... A, an interest in the nature of valuing and what it is to value something because in my view special relationships arise by virtue of the fact that one is participating in a valuable relationship and um, To value a relationship in which one's participating just is in my view to see oneself as having reasons of certain kinds um, and so uh, I began to wonder what it was to value something and I I uh, developed a view according to which valuing is itself in part a uh, diachronic phenomenon, and I became interested in relation between time and value, and that led to some further work on tradition, which also harked back to the stuff about associative duties. And then this, um, the material in Death and the Afterlife, draws on both of those threads, really, the the, um, issues about our connections to people, and what kinds of connections to people are valuable or important to us, and also issues about time and value and how um, our evaluative attitudes are shaped and inflected by temporal concerns, and that's an ongoing interest of mine. So, as 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 I trust I've aptly demonstrated, there isn't an overall theory here, but there's a kind of chain of interests which all seem to... Um, lead me from one step to another and sometimes to circle back on something that I've said before. And I'm not quite sure where it'll end up, but I'm, uh, but I'm inclined to just sort of follow my interests where they lead at this point.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, wonderful. Um, So, let's, um, uh, then let me get to the heart of the book, um, uh, which follows nicely uh, on on what you just laid out, um, because the book begins and continues uh, to circle back on and reconsider and modify in some ways uh, what you you call very early in the book a crude and morbid thought experiment. Um, Can you run us through the, at least the first iteration of uh, of, of this experiment, and uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you think its significance is sure
1: um, and perhaps by way of softening the crude and morbid <laughs> of, the, uh, of the example, I might just say that something about the point of the thought experiment, so um, as you um, explained at the beginning. Although the book is titled Death and the Afterlife, I'm not really concerned about the afterlife in the in the usual sense that is about the the possibility that one may in some way survive one's own death. I'm really concerned about um the significance of a much more a much humbler and more mundane assumption that most of us make, which is that other people will live on after we ourselves die. I I think that most of us take this for granted. Most of the time, and it doesn't seem like a very interesting assumption in a way um, or very significant one. Um, Of course, we know that it might not work out that way. We might all go together in some great um, calamity that destroyed the Earth. But generally, that's not what we expect to happen. We take for granted that others will live on after we ourselves die. And um, my uh, one of my aims in this um, book is to try to. Um, bring out the fact that this assumption is actually quite significant, that it a lot more turns on it than we might suppose. And because it's an, uh, something that we take for granted, we don't, we're not in the habit of reflecting on its significance, and its significance may not be easy initially to see. So to try to bring out what I take to be the importance of this sort of humdrum assumption that life will go on, the lives of others will go on after we ourselves die, I introduce a couple of, uh, as you say, crude and morbid thought experiments, the first of which, um, which I think I refer to as the doomsday scenario, um, Mm -hmm. asks you to imagine that you know, and bracketing questions about how you know this, but it asks you to suppose that you know that although you will live to a ripe old age and die peacefully in your sleep, um, the Earth and all of its inhabitants will be destroyed 30 days after your death um, in a collision with a giant asteroid. So, and then then the, I ask sort of to you to think about, or I invite you to think about um, how you would react in that situation if you knew this was what was going to happen. Your own, You wouldn't die uh, any earlier than you otherwise would. You wouldn't be there to witness the event. You t- would just know that 30 days after your own death um, the Earth and all its inhabitants uh, would be destroyed. So that's the thought experiment. Um, and I offer a series of conjectures and speculations, really, about how um, people would react. Um, at this point, perhaps I should just say as a matter, matter of methodology, this material really is conjectural and speculative. I mean, this is not a sort of um, a tightly constructed theory that I'm presenting. Really, this the purpose of the thought experiments and really the book as a whole is to invite people to reflect about some issues I don't think we Reflect about enough, Um, and um, I sort of make some suggestions about how I think people would react. But of course, other people may disagree and have their own ideas. And there need be it needn't be the case that everyone would react exactly the same way. Almost certainly, they wouldn't. So when I say this is how we would react, and so on, that we. is partly aspirational, but it's partly a way of referring to myself and other people who share the reactions that I myself think I would have, which I think are not eccentric, but not necessarily universal.
0: Right, right. So, and there's a a, a pretty, uh, I find compelling sort of description of um, the ways in which under this uh, doomsday scenario, um, our lives as we understand them would sort of n- no longer be recognizable to us or our practices of valuing would somehow, um, become, uh, devoid of meaning. Um, but let me ask just very quickly just this sort of philosopher's question because one of the things that it's, it seems that you think or you seem pretty confident about, uh, about the scenario is that, uh, if roughly the the or anything like the kind of reaction you think we would have to this scenario, if you're if you're correct about about those reactions, it suggests something important about what we might call sort of meta ethics or the our, our our theory of value. Uh in particular you think that certain uh, maybe popular uh conceptions of value um uh uh are shown to be incorrect in some way, or that a reaction to the doomsday scenario is inconsistent with uh, particular popular conceptions of value. Can you tell us a little bit about that point?
1: Well, I want to be—I uh, don't want to claim too much here. I don't think that our reactions by themselves falsify any metaethical theories. Um, I do think that some of our reactions, if I'm right about what they would be, that some of our reactions suggest that we ourselves don't seem to (laughs) believe those theories. Um, That is, for example, I think that um, the very fact, if as I believe it is a fact, that most of us would be quite disturbed about um, the prospect of this doomsday catastrophe taking place, um, casts doubt on the idea that we um, care only about our own experiences or states of mind. Um, it seems to me that um, if we really care deeply and would be deeply disturbed by the prospect of certain things happening after we're gone and won't be there to experience them at all, that certainly suggests that we value things other than our own experiences. Now, it might still be that some philosopher could demonstrate that really experiences are the only things that matter, in which case maybe perhaps we're mistaken. So I don't want to claim that our reactions falsify these theories. But they at least cast doubt on whether those theories capture our own um, our own attitudes.
0: Right. So uh, good. Let's let me let me soften it then. So. Um, w- w- one of the upshots then seems to be that our reaction to the doomsday scenario, if you are correct uh, about what that reaction is, um, would suggest that we um, generally don 't hold w- what we might think of as an experiential conception of value. there are things that are of value that are not just experiences or states of of mind uh, states of the minds of uh, of moral actors. Um, Uh, And it's also suggested that um, the doomsday scenario or our reaction to it, if you're correct about that reaction, would also suggest that consequentialism um, is uh, uh, might have some explaining to do. Let's put it that weekly.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, my thought was that many people would immediately see this as a great catastrophe um, that this was going to happen. And it just doesn't seemed to me that they would spend a lot of time calculating the good and bad consequences of the destruction of life on earth in order to arrive at the judgment that this was a catastrophe. Um, And in fact, if you did start to weigh up the pros and cons in that spirit, it might not be obvious what the answer was. I mean, if human beings die out, a lot of, uh, a lot of, um, uh, oh, that'll have a lot of Negative consequences, but it'll also mean that a lot of misery will be averted and a lot of suffering. So you might make, make the, you might think that from a consequentialist point of view, it's at least an open question whether the destruction of humanity would be a good or a bad thing. But our reactions don't seem to turn on any very fine assessment of the consequences. It just seems clear to us, um, that this would be, um, a horrible occurrence. And again, consequentialists couldn't tell a story or one of several different kinds of stories which would either explain or explain away our reactions or show that our actions are actually admit of a consequentialist interpretation of some kind, or that it doesn't really matter if they don't in themselves have a consequentialist content. So I don't want to claim too much. I don't want to claim large anti-consequentialist conclusions from this. I just want to point out that our reactions don't themselves seem to fit the pattern of consequentialist thinking, just as they don't seem to fit the pattern of experientialist thinking Um, as, as we discussed a moment ago
0: right um, and one one more just sort of uh, uh, question on 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 this on this part because um, one of the the more positive uh, suggestions that you think uh, follows from uh, uh, the reaction, if you 're correct to the doomsday scenario is that our practices of valuing have a certain kind of conservatism to them, not political conservatism of course, but a a kind of uh, uh, interest in preserving uh, um, uh, traditions and things can you Can you spell that out a little bit
1: yeah, well, I think
0: that there is a
1: kind of um, there 's a kind of conservatism that 's almost built into um, our valuing attitudes. I don't mean conservatism in any political sense. It's more like what Jerry Cohen once called small C conservatism rather than large C conservatism. Um, The thought is simply that ordinarily, if we value something, we see ourselves as, um, uh, as having reasons to try to sustain it, or at least to hope that it will be sustained. Um, We're not indifferent to the disappearance or the destruction of things that we value now It may not be quite as tight as a conceptual connection between valuing things and seeing reasons to preserve or sustain them Um, There are sort of there are there are the interesting cases of ephemera of various kinds things that we value um, that are essentially Time limited, you know, sand castles and bonfires and things like that. And those are interesting kinds of cases. But in general, when we value something, we sort of would like it to keep going for a while. And um, that's what I that's the kind of conservatism I have in mind. Um, And it's brought out by this doomsday scenario. Part of our reaction is that, you know, we're horrified that all of that so many things that we value and care about are going to disappear or disappear prematurely, be destroyed in horrible circumstances. So it just is a way of bringing out what I take to be a kind of common feature of our valuing attitudes, which that they have, as it were, a kind of momentum. We want the things that we value, other things equal to keep going.
0: Excellent. Um, so, to get to the, uh, to, to pick up on that and get to the, the sort of, um, some of the positive upshots that you, uh, speculatively, uh, propose, um, can you tell us a bit? So, w- w- the, the first move, uh, uh, in, in, in thinking about the doomsday scenario is to just identify, and in, in certain parts of the book, you do have sort of lists and things of, of, uh, activities that we presently, uh, engage in and regard as valuable, that if we were to become convinced of the doomsday scenario, um, act, certain kinds of activities would almost instantly seem to us um, pointless and 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 valueless. Uh, can you tell us a little bit just about the easy kinds of cases, just to get the, the, the people listening sort of uh, thinking about the kinds of cases that you think are the simplest ones, and then we could uh, talk about some of the uh, more contestable ones? Sure.
1: Um, so... The first point was that we would react with dismay or horror, um depression. We would we would regard the prospect of humanity's discussion uh, dis- sorry, of humanity's um extinction shortly after our own deaths as a disaster. But beyond those uh feelings or attitudes, um my thought was that the knowledge that this was going to happen would also affect the kinds of activities that we thought it was worthwhile to engage in during the remainder of our own lives. Um, And it struck me uh, and continues to seem to me that there are certain kinds of activities that we might previously have regarded as very worthwhile or valuable, but which might now seem to be less valuable. We might see less point in pursuing them. So... To take what you um, rightly described as some of the easier cases, um, certain kinds of goal-oriented activities. So imagine that you're a cancer researcher and your life's work is trying to um, you know, help find a cure for cancer. Um, well, if humanity is going to be destroyed you know, in a relatively short period of time, um, 30 days after your own death, the value of what you're doing might seem to be diminished. There might seem to be less point in doing that. Um, after all, you know perfectly well that it's going to may take a very long time before any cure for cancer is found, um, very long time before the benefits of such a cure are made available to people, and your motivation to engage in this work might be considerably diminished by the recognition that people just aren't going to be around very long, aren't going to, be to benefit from this research, and that might make your own efforts seem um Seem somehow pointless or less valuable or less worthwhile. And the same, I take it, is true of many other goal oriented activities, um, attempts to uh, improve the infrastructure of society, um, to, um, to think of uh, seismic research designed to make buildings and bridges safer uh, in cases of earthquake, or think of um, various campaigns of social and political reform designed to improve society's institutions and its laws. A lot of these things um, might still seem somewhat worth doing, but my thought was that um, the, their value would be, their perceived value would be considerably diminished by the knowledge that human beings just weren't going to be around very long to benefit from your efforts.
0: Right. Um And... And all that seems, I should just say, for what it's worth, very compelling uh, uh, to me. Um, uh, w- an additional upshot, though, is that you think that, um, uh, in addition to these sort of what we might think of sort of goal-oriented or long-range projects that would either you know be have their value or their perceived value be diminished or uh, 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 be reduced uh, to nothing, um, you think that our, this reaction to the the, the the doomsday scenario reveals something or suggests something. About our relations to others, or how we value uh, those relations. Um, uh, can you tell us a- a- about that dimension of the of the, of the reaction?
1: Sure. Um, so, a couple of things. Um, some people respond to. Examples like the cancer researcher or the seismic researcher or the campaigner for social and political reform, those sorts of examples, by saying, well, there's nothing very significant about that. It just shows that we're instrumentally rational. You know, I mean, if it turns out that our goal isn't going to be achievable, we naturally give up on that goal and choose a different one that will be more um, more realizable. Um, but what I think those examples bring out is the extent to which we are willing to harness, as it were, the power of instrumental rationality to pursue goals that we don't expect to be realized within our own lifetimes. Notice that most people um, don't feel similarly any loss of confidence in the value of activities of the kinds I've been mentioning Um, simply because they know that they themselves will die. The cancer researcher knows that he or she is mortal and will die someday, and ditto for the seismic researcher or the uh, political reformer. They all know that they personally will die, and that some of the uh, the ultimate benefits of the work in which they're involved won't be realized until after their own deaths. But they don't react by saying, oh, well, then I guess there's no point in doing it. The cancer researcher doesn't say, well, forget it. I'm not going to go to the lab today because I just learned I'm mortal and, um, and and cancer may not be cured in my lifetime. Obviously not. It goes without saying that these are very valuable and worthwhile things to do. Um, despite the fact that we ourselves are going to die and that the payoff won't occur until after we're dead. But the the prospect that everyone else will die after we die and that there really won't be any payoff even then, um, that would be demoralizing. And this suggests that in a certain sense, the survival of other people seems to matter to us more than our own survival. The sense in which that's true is that the survival of other people after our death seems necessary to underwrite the value or significance of what we're doing now, at least for a certain range of activities, whereas our own survival doesn't seem necessary. It's not necessary for the cancer researcher to live forever in order for cancer research to be valuable, or even for them to live long enough to see the cure actually achieved. So um, the point about instrumental rationality that's interesting is this look, isn't it uh, a striking feature about human beings that we take it completely for granted that a valuable thing to do with your life is to engage in some pursuit that will benefit others um, long after your own death Um, and that what would be demoralizing is uh, to discover that no such benefits would accrue to anyone because other um, other, other people won't survive.
0: And so does it matter or, or do you think our reactions shift or are they different when we're thinking of um, sort of future strangers uh, as opposed to uh, the way in which the, the doomsday scenario would impact our conception of our relations to particular uh, other people that we might either currently have some um, normatively significant relationship to or um, you know m- might be understood to be future generations in our own family um, uh, or or is it just is it just the point that it doesn't matter who the people are in the future um, uh, is there something special about the the relations that with the With the future people who or, the, or or people in the future who we currently have relations with
1: right, great, um, just before I answer that, if I could add one more sort of, sure. uh, footnote to the previous exchange about instrumental rationality, I just wanted to observe that. Um, we take it so much for granted that it's worthwhile, that it can be worthwhile to devote your life to activities that you don't expect to have their ultimate payoff until after your own death. It, it, can, se- it can seem such a, an obvious point that it can be hard to imagine um, how it could have been otherwise. But, but it could have been otherwise. I mean, we might have been creatures who thought that it was very important to pursue only goals that you yourself could achieve within your own life that would fully pay off within your own lifetime. And if you left things for others to do after your death, that would be considered unlucky or imprudent or something of that sort. So we might have, as it were, had a kind of practical attitude that was the equivalent of that of feeling that you needed to sort of finish everything on your plate or not bite off more than you can chew, only undertake goals that you personally will be able to fully achieve and realize, Um, and it might have been considered a kind of um, a a weakness of character or bad fortune to do something where you'd be leaving things for future generations to pursue. We don't think that way at all. We take it for granted that it's fine and indeed admirable to do things that may benefit humanity in the long term, even though we won't. Um, be around to see the the benefits. Anyway, I just wanted to add that, but to turn, but to, turn to your uh, question, yes, so a natural thought is that our reactions to the doomsday scenario might well be something along the lines of what I suggest, but that's partly because the doomsday scenario has as one of its features, the fact that everyone who's alive 30 days after your own death will die suddenly and catastrophically and more or less prematurely in this horrible um, collision. And you might think that um, what the experiment really is succeeding in eliciting is the strength of our horror. At the prospective destruction of the particular people that we care most about, whether they're individuals or groups, um, after all, all of our loved ones who are alive will be destroyed um, soon after our own deaths um, and of course, that is part of our reaction. Um, we would react with horror to that particular uh, dimension of these uh, of this thought experiment, and so to partly um, bring out what I think is a uh, another strand that is at least as significant in our reaction. Uh, I introduce a second um, a second thought experiment, which is actually drawn from a novel by P. D. James called The Children of Men, um, which some of your listeners may have read, or they may have seen a movie um, that was uh, based on that book that was made uh, a few years ago.
0: The book is better <laughs> the book is much better in opinion. Um, yeah. but um, the
1: um, the in the in the James novel, the idea is that the human race has suddenly become infertile. Um, no babies are being born. in fact, when the novel begins, no new human births have occurred in over twenty five years, so the um, human population is aging, there's nobody on the streets now younger than age 25, and the prospect is that the human race is soon going to die out. Um, and um, not through any catastrophic uh, events like a collision with an asteroid, but just that you know, everyone will age and die in the usual way and there will be no new births, so that uh, human beings will become extinct very soon. Now, the um, the interesting feature of this infertility scenario, um, in light of what we were just discussing, is that it's not a feature of this scenario that anyone you know or love will die prematurely. Um, we can imagine that everyone will live however long they were going to live anyway. Uh, all of your family and friends and people you care about will live Um, full lives it's just that no new people will be born um, to take their place so um, this it seems to me is um, is quite a striking fact if we still feel that this infertility scenario is quite depressing if we still feel that um, if we regard it as kind of horrible and catastrophic, and of course, it's a premise of the novel, and a part of its appeal is that it seems <laughs> horrible to most people. Um, that can't have anything to do with the fact that the particular people we love are going to have something bad happen to them, are going to be destroyed and, and killed in a collision or anything like that. They're not going to be. They're going to die natural deaths, let's suppose. Um, it's just that no new people will be born, and in fact... This infertility scenario is really just are it's already true that everyone we know and love is going to die someday. That's that part is already the case. The only thing that's different about the infertility scenario, the only thing that distinguishes it from our actual situation is that no new people will come into existence. And so... If it turns out, as it seems to, that we react to the infertility scenario with dismay, and if it seems, again, that certain of our activities just wouldn't seem worth pursuing, and again, we can talk about that, but that seems plausible, um, then it really, the, um, the striking conclusion seems to follow that in some ways, um, the fact that we and everyone we love and care about will someday die matters less to us than the prospect that no new people will come into existence. After all, these are non-existent people. We don't know them. We don't have any relationship with them. They have no determinate identities from our point of view. But the fact that they wouldn't come into existence seems sufficient to produce um, extreme dismay and a loss of confidence in the value of many of our activities in the way that our own deaths and the death of everyone we um, know and love uh, would not seem to do. So it seems as if um, we don't, ins- it looks as if the survival of our own loved ones doesn't matter as much for certain purposes as the coming into existence of people who are not our loved ones, who don't even have identities we have no relationship with and so on. But that they should come into existence seems to be absolutely crucial in order for us to sustain confidence in the value of many of our activities. And that suggests that it's not just our loved ones that we care about. It's human beings in general.
0: And it might, uh, at some places, at least um, in the book, you suggest that uh, for certain for certain kinds of dimensions of our practices of valuing, the uh, assumption that there will be future strangers <laughs> is even more, impo- more important, it's not just also important, it's even more important in a way uh, than uh, uh, the, the fact that um, uh, the people that we know and love uh, uh, will continue or that there will be future people coming into existence who have those relations to us, that there's something, in fact, you call it the limit. It shows the limits of our individualism in a certain sense. Is that right?
1: Well, I want to be careful here. You know, in certain ways, obviously, um, the survival of our loved ones matters a great deal to us and engages our emotions. And um, when we lose a person, the grief we feel is real grief. And we're much more focused on the people we know and care about. After all, these are people we love. And I don't want to diminish the significance of the of of. Our relationships with particular people. So, but I do think that there is also an important and much less noticed role in our lives played by the unreflective assumption that life will go on, um, and many of uh, the value of uh, the the, um, the unreflective assumption that what we're doing is valuable or worth doing often seems to depend on the assumption that we are part of an ongoing chain of lives and generations, that the value of our activities is implicitly set within a certain temporally extended context. Um, and if you cut that chain of lives and generations drastically short, if you suddenly come face to face with the assumption that life is going to end you know, imminently, then a lot the a value of many of things that we 're doing is suddenly called into question, and the mere survival of our loved ones, important as it is can 't supply that for us. There are certain things for which we need, as it were strangers, we need future generations of human beings to keep. Um, to keep coming into existence, we need the chain to continue. So the point is not that our loved ones don't matter to us. Of course, they matter enormously to us. But m- more than one thing can matter to us. And the survival of the human race matters to us in a different kind of way, but quite a crucial way, uh, seems to me
0: excellent before before we move on to uh the 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 book closes or, or the, the third part of the book closes with a discussion of how what you think the upshot is for how we should regard our own the fact of our own uh inevitable uh or the fact that our own deaths are inevitable i do want to ask just one this sort of further thing uh, that that raises um uh uh something you do mention in the book but it's really about the uh, about the children of men novel um which is um that in the, in the novel, and this is also represented in, in the film, um, not only uh, does this uh, sort of uh, infertility scenario seem to um, uh, have the effect on on, on the, the, the characters in the book of uh, rendering a lot of life, you know, long-term projects uh, uh, futile and all the rest, but as you note in the book, um, the characters, or at least many of them uh, in the book, see the infertility scenario as sort of Um, uh, robbing sort of even short-term projects (laughs) like forming friendships, uh, uh, having sex, these sorts of things, Uh, these are somehow uh, impacted in in a way that um, uh, might seem surprising. Can you you tell us a little bit uh, about that? Sure, I'm glad you asked
1: about that because so far we've only discussed these kind of obviously goal-oriented projects like curing cancer or strengthening bridges and that sort of thing, and one response is to think, well, okay, but all the other activities that don't have a similarly goal-oriented character wouldn't be uh, threatened um, by the prospect of humanity's extinction. Um, And um, so it's interesting, actually, to think about a wider range of cases and to ask ourselves whether it would still seem worth doing different sorts of things uh, under the under, say, infertility conditions. So, um, one type of example, uh, sort of, um, given that we're both philosophers, and as are many of our listeners, presumably will be. Um, you know, so you're working on an article on something or other. Say, I'm writing some article now on political philosophy, about political philosophy. As human population begins to age and die out, would I really feel it was worthwhile trying to finish these articles that I'm working on now? Well, I'm not at all sure that I would. And that's not because I ordinarily think that my article is going to have a great impact on the future of humanity, that it's going to sort of provide some benefit like curing cancer or, you know, strengthening bridges. It's not that writing articles has exactly a goal-oriented structure of that kind, but it does seem to me uh, that I'm implicitly taking it for granted that as a philosopher who's trying to work certain things out in my writings, I'm sort of a participant in an ongoing practice, a temporally extended practice, a kind of temporally extended conversation, if you like. And um if I can't make that assumption, if it's like nobody's going to be around reading and thinking about these things in the future, my doing it now just doesn't make any you know, a great deal of sense to me. Um, so I feel that there are a lot of Activities that have that kind of character. They're not goal oriented, but they seem to implicitly depend on some view of oneself as participating in a temporally extended practice. Now, the surprising, uh, the surprising suggestion In P.D. James's novel is that even activities you might think would be the most immune to this kind of effect, even the ones that would still seem as compelling and attractive as ever under doomsday conditions or under infertility conditions might lose some of their appeal. So in her book, her hero. Somehow he tries to keep his spirits up by sort of uh, listening to music and reading novels and drinking wine and so on. You know, and it works a little bit, but um, he just finds that it doesn't give him as much pleasure as, uh, as it previously did or as it, he had hoped it would. And one thing this suggests, although I suspect some listeners may be skeptical about that uh, suggestion of James's, I think one thing it suggests is that these um, these um, kinds of more appetitive pleasures um, which might seem not to depend in any way for their appeal on their contribution to any longer term process or uh, or chain of events still um, their place in our lives. is not unaffected by other attitudes and that if we somehow see that our that human beings are dying out, then those things no longer seem as rewarding to us, partly because they normally seem rewarding to us because they have a certain place in a good life. And our conception of a good life just seems to be called into question by um, these catastrophic uh, possibilities that we're um, entertaining. So I would say this, people will disagree about which activities would, um, which specific activities would come to seem less valuable under doomsday or infertility conditions. And I don't have any stake in insisting that this or that activity would no longer seem worthwhile. Also, with respect to any particular activity, it may be a matter of degree. It might not be that it would seem completely worthless to have a glass of wine, say, but it might just seem less satisfying. So my, the important point from my point of view is that the range of valuable activities um, that would seem to be available to us under these conditions would be considerably diminished. The realm of value would shrink. Many act, some activities would not seem worthwhile. Some previously valuable activities would not seem worthwhile at all to us, and others might seem less worthwhile than they seemed before. So, in that sense, the realm of value would shrink. And again, um, that's the important point. It doesn't really matter what, whether this or that particular activity would or would not seem valuable to a particular person. There might be variation um, there, but. The larger point is what matters, and again, the relevant contrast is with how we react to the prospect of our own mortality. Um, sometimes people suggest when um, when discussing these issues that look um, when people individually find out that they only have a short time to live, of course they find it initially catastrophically depressing, but often they as it we're bounced back, and they resolve to spend the rest of their time doing things that are really valuable, and the suggestion has been made that perhaps it would be like that for humanity as a whole, faced with the imminent extinction of the human race, it would be very depressing at first, but maybe we'd sort of pull our socks up and sort of bounce back and resolve to do really valuable things <laughs> with their time that remains. My sense is that it's not—it's not a good analogy. Um, that if you can. Conf- Confronting one's own mortality and the fact that you have a limited amount of time left to live the feeling is that there's this wonderful world full of value and you only have a certain amount of time to take advantage of it and when people bounce back they're really resolving to take advantage of of as much of what's really valuable as they can in the time that remains to them. Um, If you even think about the popular idea of a bucket list you know there's what's (laughs) the idea the idea is. Well, you don't want to die without it. There's so many wonderful things to do. You must be sure to do these wonderful things. And the, the, the attitude seems to be there's a wonderful world full of value. And the, and the tragedy is that you have to leave it. Okay, but in the case I'm imagining where human, you know, we're in the infertility world and the population is aging and people are dying out, it's that the realm of value itself seems to be under assault. It seems to be shrinking. A lot of things that were worth doing just don't seem worth doing anymore. It doesn't seem as valuable to, to go to the lab or to write the article or perhaps even to read novels. Um, so, um anyway that's the um that's the kind of phenomenon that I'm trying to elicit through uh through these thought experiments.
0: Good. Um so uh, let's turn to the, the 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 way the book closes which is a uh, uh a chapter about um how uh, our uh, reactions with respect to our practices of valuing, our understanding of what is a value, our relations with other people, how they are affected by the doomsday and infertility scenarios how how these reactions if you 're correct about them. Uh, should inform our attitudes about um, our own death, um, and one of the, the, the striking uh, suggestions is that um, uh, if you're correct about uh, the upshots of these um, uh, two scenarios, then it looks as if one of the conditions for our um, practicing uh, our practices of value and of finding value and meaning in our lives is the, as you call it, the temporal scarcity of life. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, well, you know, one, um, one might wonder uh, um, about the arguments that we've just been discussing, um, where they, um, what they imply about how one should regard one's own death. Um, does it follow from what I've been saying about the importance of uh, the survival of others that one shouldn't fear one's own death at all? Um, maybe it's not so bad. Um, In the final lecture, I sort of take up this question about how one should regard one's own death. And um, I actually don't think that the importance of the survival of others means that one shouldn't fear one's own death. Um, The prospect of, even though the prospect of one's own death doesn't threaten to undermine Um, the value of our activities and the way that the disappearance of human race as a whole would, uh, that doesn't mean that it's unreasonable to fear death. And part of what I do in that uh, last lecture is, as it were, to defend the fear of death against arguments that purport to show that there's something irrational about it. And yet, at the same time, um, I do think that there's reason to think that... um, not only that our own death isn't necess- isn't our own deaths um, do not jeopardize our capacity to find value in our activities, I actually am inclined to think, as you suggested, that um, our capacity to find value in our lives depends on our being mortals who know that we're going to die that is temporal scarcity the scarcity of time available to each of us is i think a condition of our finding value in many of our activities and i'm inclined to agree with those philosophers although perhaps for different reasons than some of them i'm inclined to agree with those philosophers who've argued that immortality wouldn't really be a good thing um, or at any rate, from my point of view, it would undermine the conditions under which we find value in many of the activities we do find value in. So if this is right, I I think we have a we're in a very odd position. We fear death, and we're not unreasonable for fearing death. But that our personal death does not threaten our capacity to find value in our activities, whereas our immortal existence might indeed threaten our capacity to find value uh, in our ordinary existence. Um, And that's because uh, the assumption of temporal scarcity, the assumption, the knowledge that we are mortal and will live only for a finite amount of time, seems to me to exert a profound and multifaceted uh, effect on our ideas of value from the outset our ideas of value are so pervasively shaped by the um, recognition that our life is limited that to suspend that assumption um, makes it very difficult to know what to say about um, what kinds of activities, if any, would seem valuable to us were we to live forever. Part of my thought is that, um, is that, it's temporal scarcity that puts pressure on us to develop value ideas in the first place. Um, The fact that we have so little time available to us forces us to think, well, what's worth doing? What should I do? Because I I can't do everything. And it's the pressure exerted by um, temporal scarcity um, that um, is one of the main impulses toward developing value concepts from the beginning.
0: Excellent. Um, so let me then, then close with our final question about the book. At least I want a question after this, uh, is, um, just the, 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 very end of, of, of that third, uh, lecture, uh, in the book, um, makes a very, I think, intriguing, fascinating point that picks up on, 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 uh, part of what you were just saying. So, um, One observation, as you were just making, is that um, we have this strange connection to our own deaths, we have good reason to fear our own deaths, But um, that fear can't be cashed out in terms of a sort of uh, uh, desire for immortality, or there's something uh, uh, value destroying, uh, or or, or something that undermines our conception of value. If we uh, uh, think seriously about the prospect of immortality, Uh, the the very end of the lecture has this different kind of contrast, um, where um, you begin again by saying, "Yes, you know, people fear death. There are all kinds of reasons why it's." Perfectly reasonable to people for people to fear their own death um, uh, even though it's inevitable may um, say but we tend not to fear enough a avoidable but um, perhaps increasingly likely uh, scenario of the extinction of the human race. Um, can you say something about that? It's it's a point at the very end, which I thought was really, really interesting.
1: Yeah, I, I, again, if you juxtapose our attitudes toward our own death with our attitudes toward the survival or non-survival of the human race as a whole, uh, some interesting things emerge. So as you were suggesting, we fear our own deaths, and in my view, many people fear their own deaths, and in my view, they're not unreasonable if they do, um, even though their deaths are inevitable, and even though their deaths do not uh, pose a threat to their capacity to find value in their activities while they're alive, um, we don't really feel any comparable fear, most of us, about the threats to the survival of the human race. Um, but the survival of the human race is by no means inevitable, and its survival is essential, if I'm right, in order for people to find uh, to have confidence in the value of activities. So we fear the thing that doesn't threaten our capacity to find value in our lives But we don't fear sufficiently uh, the thing that does threaten to have to undermine our capacity to find value in our lives and that something is uh, What we don't fear are the threats to the survival of humanity, which are very real and uh, it seems increasingly urgent and The good news is that we could do something about many of those threats. I mean, many of those threats are human-made threats to the survival of humanity. And one of the sort of more encouraging uh, upshots of my argument is that Um, The thing that our, to the extent that our um, capacity to find value in our activities depends on the assumption that humanity will survive after our deaths, to the extent that that's true, the good news is that we can actually do something to try to make it more likely that human beings really (laughs) will survive. Um, after our deaths though uh, I think that we're not doing nearly enough and it's not at all clear how long humanity will survive but I my hope is that um, if we reflect more about this it will at least become clear to us that um, that there are strong reasons of some perhaps unfamiliar kinds for us to concern ourselves with the future of uh, the human race.
0: Right. So there might be an upshot is sort of a, there, there might be an environmental ethics sort of upshot <laughs> upshot of this. Uh, yes, that, I think um, it has implications
1: for climate change, for nuclear proliferation, for uh, environmental concern more generally. Um, and for philosophers, I should say, um, I um, I find that thinking about the issue in these terms, Um, leads me to feel that the usual way in which philosophers discuss problem responsibilities towards future generations is somewhat limited and um, artificially narrow. Um, Once one starts thinking in these terms, then uh, usually when philosophers talk about responsibilities to future generations, they have in mind what kind of duties we have, or obligations, and somehow there are these vulnerable future people, and we've got to make sure we owe it to them to do and not do certain things. And this use of the language of morality and responsibility um, suggests that it's only because we have a moral duty um, that we should concern ourselves with future generations. And this language of um, moral duty and responsibility um, may in addition to not being tremendously effective, because it may just contribute to sort of obligation fatigue, also seems to me to understate or mischaracterize the reasons we have for concerning ourselves with future generations. The most fundamental reason we have is because they matter so much to us. Um, We care about them for their own sake. And, um moreover, our own capacity to find value in our activities depends on their survival. So we have lots of kinds of reasons to care about the future of the human race, um, not just reasons of moral obligation. I mean, morality is fine, and I don't mean we don't have moral obligations. I mean that if that's all we focus on, we're missing uh, the larger picture.
0: Well excellent Sam you've been very generous with your time and it's been a real pleasure uh, uh talking to you about uh your book Death and the Afterlife. Um I usually end these uh uh conversations with uh, the following question um what are you working on now what's what's next for you?
1: Well um I'm working on a number of different things, but actually, uh, among the things I'm working on are some of the issues we've just been discussing. So I have been writing some things about future generations and why they matter and trying to sort of articulate some of my reasons for dissatisfaction with the existing philosophical literature on, uh, problems of future generations. And more generally, I'm continuing to work on other questions of time and value. Um, and, um, I hope that, uh, I hope that they will lead to lead me to other interesting places in the future
0: well that's wonderful uh and if there's a uh a, a book that comes out eventually uh on this uh, on these new uh concerns or these further concerns uh maybe we'll uh invite you back to come and talk to uh talk to me about them on new books in philosophy
1: I would enjoy doing that
0: well thank you so much for your time and uh, uh the book is uh death and the afterlife and uh Thanks for writing such a a, a really fascinating uh, uh, book of philosophy.
1: Well, thank you, Bob, and thanks for inviting me to talk about the book. Take care now. You too.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Professor Samuel Scheffler of New York University. We were talking about his new book, Death and the Afterlife, recently published by Oxford University Press. I'm Robert Talish, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy.